Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. The rest of you, have you open your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 29. We continue our walk through the Old Testament through the rest of this year. We're getting close to that end. And I'll uh, just let you know that when we hit December, we'll start an Advent series like we did last year. And we have a devotion in the works like we had last year. Um, and so we are uh, starting to get to work on that. But just know that we're going to carry on until then with our time through the Old Testament. It's been a good time to go through um, the old, um, to remember why we have the new and what and how everything points forward uh, to Christ. G. Campbell Morgan once said, I believe the promises of God enough to venture an eternity on them. When we look into scripture, there are so many promises of God. We might even come to believe that they all apply to us as individuals. Uh, We want them to apply to us, some of them anyway, but if you have Jeremiah chapter 29, there's probably at least one verse that popped into your head, if you know the scripture at all, when I said Jeremiah chapter 29. Anybody want to take a shot? There you go. You got it. You said the first three words, for I know the plan. That's four words, five words. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans uh, for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. There is a danger, though, uh, when we start thinking that verse 11 applies directly to us or is written directly for us. It applies in all ages, but that it is written directly to us. There's a danger as well when it comes to cherry-picking verses of Scripture without the proper context of that promise. Without the proper context, you can make anything say whatever you want it to say. If you want to do some interpretive gymnastics, you can make verse 11 be directly written to you, and that will lead you to think that God only has good for you all of the time. No bad. And you are free to think that. But what happens when life happens? What happens when life hits you upside the head? What happens when that loved one dies? What happens when the stock market crashes and your 401k drops by 40% or more? What happens when gas is high and the cost of living skyrockets? What happens when your kids don't love the Lord like you thought they would when they grow up? What happens when you struggle having that first child? What happens when your mom or your dad begin to slip in their health and their mind is not what it once was? What happens when tragedy strikes you or your family? It's called life. This verse is not a promise from God for you to have good all the time. But pastor, it's my life verse. I have scripture art hanging on my wall with this verse. 
All the promises of the Bible are for me. They're written for me. Okay, let's take them all then. At the age of 99, you're going to give birth to a son and name him Isaac. How's that one for you? <laughs> Husbands, by the way, all of your wives are going to get pregnant because that, verse to, that promise to Mary applies to them directly, does it not? And is, all of those children are going to be named Jesus. See, you can't take every promise direct, directly for you, can you? Context, context, context. A context, a text without a context is a, pre, a pretext for a proof text. I'll get that straight. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text, which means if I take the verse out of context, I can make it say whatever I want, and I can prove it. If you pull scripture out, cherry pick, you can make it say whatever you want it to say. So what happens then if that is the case and this is direct, written directly to you, then you've got a couple of options when life hits you upside the head. One, God has good plans for me all the time, but when something bad happens, that was not God's plan, but it was the devil's plan. The devil's plans are what happened. The problem with that is that it puts Satan on equal footing with God, and that's not the case. God is sovereign, and he is on his throne and does what he wants. His plans are sovereign. His purpose is sovereign. He is all-powerful. Satan is not. The second option, then, is that God desires and only intends good things for you. However, if bad happens, if life hits you upside the head, then the cause must be that something is wrong with your faith. You don't have enough faith. The problem with that, again, is that God is sovereign. and He is not dependent upon you to accomplish his will, nor is he a dependent upon me. Psalm 46 verse 10 calls us to be still, stop fighting. Be still and know that he is God. He goes on to say, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Has very little to do with our faith. He is God. And he calls us to stillness, to peace, and to know that he is God. He invites us to know that he is God in that moment. But we have to be still. So if at the beginning of time, friends, God spoke, let there be light, and what was nothing became something, and there was light, the light, the earth, the galaxies, the stars, the sun, the moon, all of those things leaped into existence at his word, do you think that he is somehow limited by your faith and cannot speak into your life whatever he wants? As if he needs your faith in order to bless you? Like somehow your faith is a magic formula to make that happen. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that the faith, the faith that saves is a gift from God so that no man may boast. Context, context, context. Jeremiah chapter 29 was written to a certain group of people at a certain time in a certain place facing dire circumstances. They're Jewish exiles in Babylon taken by Nebuchadnezzar around 597 B.C., not the last group, but it's part of an important group. There's, been, there's already some that have been there for about eight years, so it's written in this time frame. This promise, though not directly written to us, still has an impact on us today and still applies to us today, and we will get there because there's a timeless principle in all of God's word that we can pull and apply to our life today, but we've got to dig in to find that original meaning in the context so you're not led down the wrong path. 
Why is that a problem? Because so many people fall into that prosperity gospel trap. You've heard it. God's doing a new thing. The winds of change are blowing over you. At Coastal Oaks, that's the air conditioner. God's opening doors to you that you've never thought possible. Oh, you're not doing anything wrong. God is just bringing you from a one level of glory to a new level of glory. The Bible says in Isaiah 43, God's doing a new thing. He's ready to open new doors of opportunity to you. What dream have you laid down this morning that, brothers and sisters, you just need to pick up today? And then, bam, life hits you. And it's either a problem with God being overrun by the devil or it's you lacking the faith. Either way, your thought undermines the truth because neither one of those is true. When life hits you, we remember that John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Persecution, famine, hardship, disease, yes, even death are going to be a reality. But Christ overcame the world. There's no doubt that Christ has overcome the world. But we still live life now. As he has overcome the world, that doesn't change the hardship that we face. Because he told us, you will have trouble. That's future tense. He's looking forward to the disciples. He's talking about the disciples, talking to them. Talking to the early Christians that were going to follow them. You will have trouble. Future tense. But take heart when you have trouble because I have overcome the world. No matter what, in Christ there is victory. Even in death there is victory because from his death he brought forth life for those who believe in him. So how does Jeremiah chapter 29 apply to us today? So if you've been reading along through the Old Testament with us, you've got the big picture of what's happening in the Old Testament. So let me read. I'm going to read from verses 1 to 14 this morning out of Jeremiah chapter 29. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers, had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisha, the son of Shaphan and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, all right, so that's the rundown of who's, who's who, who's gone, who's there, who remains, who's getting the letter. Here's what the letter said, parts of it anyway. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. 
For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray you will open our ears to hear, open our hearts to hear what you are saying to us through your word. Father, what we do not know, please teach us. Let your truth sink deep into our hearts, there that it may be hidden that we may not sin against you. Father, what we are not yet, continue to make us into Christ-likeness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The sovereignty of God brings hope to the hopeless. When I say the sovereignty of God, that is his rule and reign in our lives and over his, all of his creation. There is no one that can take that from him. There is no one that can override that sovereignty. In the opening section of chapter 29, those are all the players in this part of the story that receive the letter. But there's one truth that will stand out to those who claim all good all the time. Verse 4, you'll see it there. After the rundown and the roster, Jeremiah writes, the Lord speaks, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem. That's not King Nebuchadnezzar writing that. That's God. Speaking of God, I have sent them into exile. You'll notice there that he took credit for the exile. It wasn't the devil undermining God's plan. It wasn't uh, someone else's plan. It was the exile, the tribulation, was God's doing. It's his way of discipline and the, of those he loves. They're far from home. They had lost everything but their lives and a few material possessions that they were allowed to take. Most of it was left behind in Jerusalem, left to decay and destruction and ruin. Their freedom is gone. We love our freedom. Could you imagine it being totally gone? They're most likely separated from their families, some of them. Not all, not all made that journey. But their situation that they find themselves in in Babylon is dire. It's dim. It's grim. But it is God's word here to remind them what was happening under his control and under his plan. The sovereignty of God settles that restless heart because it calls the believer to trust him. To trust his plan. And knowing that God brought the exile the, 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 the Jew into exile, it also gives a weight to this moment where God clearly so, uh, spoke to his people and told them that this exile would happen if they did not repent and turn back to God. Multiple generations heard that message. Multiple generations continued to turn their back on God and not repent. So if God said it would happen, and it did, then what follows is also going to be true. And then he's going to call them into action. You're into exile because I sent you there. But here's what needs to happen in verse 5. He gives a series of commands here that are very interesting. One, he says in verse 5, build houses and live in them. Build houses and live. Plant gardens. Eat the produce of the garden. Put down roots. Make a life for yourself there. Why? Because it sounds like they're going to be there a while saying that, doesn't it? Verse 6, he says, take wives and give your sons 
to, uh, to, to, uh, in marriage. Give your daughters and your sons in marriage. Why? So that the next generation comes along. So get married and have lots of babies. I've done my part, please. Okay? We're done. We got nine of them. That's enough. Some of y'all need to catch up. But there is a sense here, church, there's a sense of decline in the church today because the church is not having as many children as we used to. That's not the only reason churches are in decline. It's very low on the list. But it is one reason. Why? Why are they to have babies? Why are they to multiply? So that the number of Jews doesn't die off. There's no diminishing there. So that when God does come back and visit his people again and bring them back home to Jerusalem, there is actually a people left to go. Verse 7. Back to life in Babylon. Seek the welfare of the city and pray for the city. By praying to the Lord for the city's welfare, they're actually praying for their own welfare. As the city of Babylon is successful and achieving whatever they're setting out to achieve, so will the people of God. How do you pray for Rockport and Fulton? How do you pray for those of you that live in Ingleside or Portland or Aransas Pass, Holiday Beach, Lamar, all the other places around? If you're watching online, how do you pray for the city where you live? Do you pray for its welfare? Do you pray for its success? Not just praying for our football team to make the playoffs or this or that, but the city itself to be prosperous. Many of you are business owners in this community. You want the city to be prosperous. You want tourism to be healthy because that's how you thrive in your business. See, we need to be praying for our city. Most importantly, though, we need to be praying that our city would come to know Jesus. God calls them to seek the good of the people where he put them. Pray for peace and prosperity. For the city. It's very practical, not easily done because sometimes we get into a struggle with people in our own community over different aspects of government or, or school or politics or, or uh, commerce practices, things like that. But it's in their best interest to do that. It reminded me of how Paul wrote to the Roman believers to pray for the government authorities. And then doing that, he's calling them to pray for the very government in Rome that's persecuting the church. And it had arrested Paul himself. doesn't make sense, and yet Jesus called us to pray for those who are against us, our enemies. He also wrote to Timothy to pray for kings and rulers so as to live tranquil lives. I think we're benefiting from that very prayer today, captured centuries ago. God is also saying, listen, there's, there's no need for an uprising. There's no need for anyone of you to try to lead a rebellion. Don't do that. Give it time. Be patient. Live at peace. Pray for the welfare of the city where you live. Put your roots down. Get married. Have lots of babies. I'm coming to get you, but it's going to take a while. All amazing and interesting commands. Not at all what they were expecting. Why was that? Well, look at verses 8 and 9. You'll find out. God has to correct an error for what they've been taught. There's an error floating. or There's a fake news floating around out there. That they've heard, verse 8, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to their dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Friends, the fake gospel 
of false prophets destroy by anchoring hope in a lie. A lie that will destroy. A lie that will lead to death. Friend, do not put your hope in man's message. Put your hope in the word of God. I sure have to remind myself that this time of year when it comes to election time. I'd encourage you to go vote. Pray before you do. But I am reminded of false prophets all the time in politics. There's a very clear message, though, for us today, for the people of God, not to listen to these so-called prophets. Who are they? What is their message? Well, if you go back to chapter 28, you will find, you will find there a man by the name of Hananiah. Hananiah is a false prophet. He's speaking on behalf of God, but God has not sent him to speak. God has not commanded him to speak. He is totally making this up. Here's what he says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I will also break, uh, bring back uh, the place to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. And all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. His message is simply this. God's going to make it right in two years. It's only going to take two years. Beloved, that is a prosperity gospel in the 7th century B.C. There is nothing new under the sun. False prophets have been peddling a false gospel for centuries upon centuries. It's one of the enemy's greatest weapons. Why? Because we want good news, and we want to know that if it hurts, it won't hurt long. And we want, to, we want comfort, and if we're uncomfortable, we want to know we're not going to be uncomfortable very long. We want prosperity. We want wealth. We want health. We want good all the time. We want to live out all of our dreams, which most of the time are selfish and self-centered. Jeremiah says, brother... I hope it happens the way you said it's going to happen. But there's another prophet that said something different. That prophet said, hey, it's going to take 70 years, man. He's not coming back. It's going to be 70 years before he comes and gets us out of exile. Could you imagine being in your 30s, 40s, or older than that? Hearing that message in 70 years we're going back? Man, if I make it, I'm going to be 100 if I'm 30, I'm going to be 100 by the time the Lord comes back. I, that means I'm never going to make it back. I'm never going to make it home. That doesn't sound like good news. Why would I want to hear that news? Two years sounds a whole lot better to me. I'm going to take this guy. Fake gospels and false prophets tell us what we want to hear. They peddle a false gospel because it's what we want to hear. We, we chase after them because it tickles our ears and might even give us goosebumpies if we're listening in, intently enough. But Paul told Timothy that would happen. Paul told Timothy there will always be false gospels. There will always be false prophets coming along. Why? Because people don't want to hear the truth. They go on after chasing that which they want to hear rather than that which is true. He writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, if you have your Bible, turn there. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Here is what Paul wrote to Timothy. Understand this, 
That in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those that creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and uh, Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, Scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Friends, God laid the truth in his word. And he has done that for the Jews that were in exile in Jeremiah's day, that when God speaks, when God's word speaks, there is an anchor for our soul. The word of God is the anchor of the soul and encourages endurance. What the people in Jeremiah's day needed to hear was that God had not forgotten them. What they needed to hear from God, that his presence was still there, that there was yet another day coming, a better day coming, when God would rescue his people. And that's where verse 11 centers. It centers around on that. The word of God is the anchor of the soul and encourages us to continue and push on. Listen to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 and following. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Abraham believed God. He waited, and he obtained the promise. Verse 16, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that endures into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Just a quick glimpse, and we'll go back to Jeremiah. The two truths that 
the, the author of Hebrews laid out for us there. One, two unchangeable things, two unchangeable timely principles for us. One is the promise or the purpose of God. It's unchangeable. When God has made a promise, when he has made a covenant, he sticks to it. He is faithful always. His faithfulness will always endure. The second thing is his word or his oath. He does not lie. It is impossible for God to lie. So with his promise, as sure and steadfast, we hold fast to that hope that is set before us. That hope is a sure and steady anchor, which ultimately finds itself in Christ Jesus. That hope, the word of God. Now, back to Jeremiah chapter 29, when we have this word, verse 10, thus says the Lord, and we know this is God speaking. Now, thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed, it's going to be a time I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. I'm going to bring you home. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Listen to the promises that he makes. I will visit you. I will fulfill my promise. They promise to keep the promise to bring you back to this place. I'll bring you back home. This is his word that brings hope. This is his word that serves as an anchor for these people for the next 70 years. Tie another knot in the end of your rope and hang on because he's coming. But in that time, look what's going to happen. Okay? According to his plan for Israel, the you is plural here. Okay? This is where we can make a mistake thinking it's written directly to us. That you is plural. For I know the plans I have for you. That's all of Israel, all of God's people. It's not singular. It's plural. And if you want to argue with me on that, then you also then, if you want to say, no, no, it's, it's you, it's singular. You have to go to verse 14 and uh, also make that one singular where um, it says that he will gather you from all the nations and all the places where he's driven you. That means God cuts you up into pieces and sends you out all over the world and he's going to bring all those pieces back and put you back. Okay. So we can settle that it's plural, right? It's all of God's people. He's going to bring us all, he's going to bring them all back home. Okay bringing them all back home. And then he's going to say this, to seek and find me. You will seek and find me when you do so with all your heart. There again is Deuteronomy chapter 6 where God called Israel, called Moses and the people of God to love God with all of their heart, mind, soul, strength, everything they've got to love the Lord. And now he's calling them to seek him, to actively desire to live in fellowship with God. And to love him that way. Then he says, I will be found by you. I will be here. I will restore you. I will gather you. And by the way, we're not there to the part of the story yet. We're going to get there in time. But he's going to use a non-Jew in order to make this happen. A king from another country is going to make that happen. It's an amazing story how God works in all things. But listen, he says, seek God with all your heart. Seek for holiness. Seek for righteousness. Seek for godliness. You see, the problem with false prophets is they lacked an understanding of what was happening here. Why Babylon? They lacked an understanding of the depth of God's judgment upon the sin of Israel. They didn't understand what God was doing. Their sin was not light. It was serious because sin always is serious. God had not and would not let that go, yet in that he would not forget them. The future, the hope that they have of course, is fully realized in Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 6 points us to Jesus as that sure and steady anchor for the soul, the fulfillment of all of God's promises found in Christ Jesus. 
Does Jeremiah 29, 11 certainly apply to us today? Absolutely it applies to us today. But that future and that hope that he's talking about is not found in this life, but rather it's found only in Christ and the life to come. Paul wrote to the Philippian church, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In order to gain after this life, there must be something better on the other side. There must be something more important on the other side. And friend, it is God himself that is there on the other side. That's why it is to Paul's gain and to our gain. Don't take a self-centered reading of Jeremiah chapter 29. This is not a private promise. This is a corporate promise. For Israel then, today, for the church, we, the whole people of God, both Jews and Gentiles, a promise to find salvation in Christ. When applied to the church, it brings hope to know that God does have his plan for the church. We have the rest of the story in the book of Revelation. We know the game plan. We know what he's going to do. And we know that Christ and his church are victorious. That God really does work all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, as Paul taught to the Roman believers. Why is that? What is that purpose? Well, if you go past verse 28 and quit cherry-picking verse 28 and get the rest of the story, the victory in Christ, the good things that he's talking about, in verse 28, he says in verse 29 and 30, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. To be like Christ, in Christ's likeness, that is the hope and the future that we have. We cannot be like that on our own. We cannot get to his presence on our own. We needed a savior. We needed a mediator. We needed someone to pay for our sin, and that is Christ Jesus who gave his life on the cross. He has called those. He's justified them. And those he's justified, he's also glorified. It's all his work. That's his plan. Beloved, his, his word will not go out and return to him void. He is developing and growing his bride. He is shaping that bride to look like Christ. So when you leave this morning, I pray you will settle in your heart, be reassured of the word of God and how the word of God brings hope and that the fake gospel and fake false prophets bring disappointment. I call you to look and examine where your trust is. Have you placed your trust in a hope that has let you down? Because clearly the Bible says Christ is a hope that will never be, bring disappointment. God hasn't let you down. If you were let down, then you were pursuing a fake God and you were pursuing fake news from a fake prophet. You were believing in a lie. God has his plan, Christ-likeness. Beloved, heaven is going to be awesome because he is there. But in the midst of that, in that journey, we have trials, we have tribulation, we have struggle, we have the crazy that we're in. And yet in all of that, we have this sure and steady anchor for our hope of better days to come. And it is in the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, secured by the word and the promise of God. Plans. His plans for a future his plans for hope is found in Jesus Christ.